we are back this week with it's not a great woman in fraud, but it's a great dude in fraud. And I have to say, Christian Hunt, like I honestly remember the first time that I spoke with you. I was at my gym and we had this time issue. So I literally got off the machine, ran upstairs to take a phone call. And I have pages of notes because I was so excited to talk with you. So Christian, tell the great woman in fraud audience about why I'm such a fan of yours. Well, I'm not sure why you're such a fan, but I'll I'll try and I'll try and do my own sort of quick quick summary. So I specialize in something called human risk, which I define as the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should. And that is a very broad definition that encompasses everything from I'm intentionally setting out to commit fraud, a subject your listeners will be interested in, through to I'm just a bit tired and I screwed up. And I came to the realization as I was working in financial services, both as a regulator and as a risk and compliance officer, that when things go wrong in organizations, and I guess on the the world as a whole, there's always a human involved, either causing the problem in the first place, or as is very often the case, making it worse by the way that they react to it or don't react to it. And so as I was doing this this compliance and risk role, I realized that we were in the business of influencing human decision-making. And in common with many other organizations, we weren't doing it particularly effectively. And I started to look at the techniques that were being used. And cutting a very long story short, Zoe, what I, what I do now is the same thing I started to do in the bank that I was working in, which is help organizations manage ethics, compliance, and risk with a human component by thinking about behavioral science. And therefore, using techniques that you would expect to see in advertising, that you would see in contexts like uh, train stations, where they try and get you to behave or airports, trying to get you to behave in a particular way in the service of risk ethics and compliance. And I have quite a lot of fun doing it. So um, hopefully that's why uh, that's why you enjoy talking to me. Well, yeah. And you have a, an amazing newsletter that like it's so creative. Well, all your work, I think, is really, really creative. And I think that gets what that's what gets people to pay attention is that creativity. So have you always been creative? You know what? I I don't consider myself to be particularly creative. I think I'm just very curious. And so I was always one of those really annoying kids that did the kind of why, why, why? At exactly the point that my parents found it most embarrassing. You know, I'd point at people or I'd say it in the wrong, you know, ask, asking questions, but they indulged that. And, and I think that's that's always kind of continued. And I in the UK, you have the benefit of if you, you can study pretty much study what you want and then make a career, unless you want to be uh, like an engineer or, or an architect or a, a medical doctor, you can pretty much study what you want. And then and then most employers will kind of retrain you. And so I did a literature degree. And what I've realized with hindsight is that literature is all about people because we tend not to write books, at least not fiction, um, about inanimate objects because that would be a bit dull. We write books about people and what make, you know, and, and, and so why are we invested in novels and plays? Well, the answer is it's, it's human beings. And we're going, what is going on here? We're trying to make sense of it. We're watching what's happening, the motivations of the characters. And so I've always had this fascination with people. And it took me, God, about 20 odd years to work out that this was potentially useful from a business perspective. And so I went through very seriously. I became an accountant, did very serious things uh, and a regulator and a central banker and all kinds of things. And then and then just realized that actually this curiosity was would, could take me to some interesting places. So I think creativity for me. It just comes from me just asking lots of questions and I see things and I draw parallels. And so the whole of my kind of business really is about, I mean, it's very simple, right? It's looking at certain contexts and saying, what are we, what are we learn from that? What can we learn from the way they persuade us to behave in a particular way here that might be useful somewhere else? And so I'm constantly looking for parallels saying, what can I learn from that particular situation? So spoiler alert, apologies for those people. Say, I, I'm spending, you know, I'm not the kid in the sixth sense, right? I see things that other people don't because I'm spending my whole life looking for these parallels and then I just draw them out. So your thank you very much for your kind words on the, 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 the newsletter. It's really what I try and do is take, take things I see around me, things I think are interesting and see if we can get some, some nuggets for other contexts out of it. So, Okay, I, because I am a fangirl, I completely started this wrong because I have this new thing, which we're just going to insert now, is word association. So I Ooh. can't wait to get your word association. <laughs> um, what do you think of when you hear the word fraud? Oh, 
Uh, I'm cheating now, aren't I? Because I'm buying myself more time. Uh, right now, I'm thinking oligarchs. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Are you loving to see where all the boats, not boats, freaking yachts are? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating for me because I spend half of my time in London at the moment, half my time in Germany. And so London is the center of, they have all the houses here. And so there's, there's that element of it. But, but Germany is the place where they're, they're impounding boats and doing all those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm watching this soap opera unfold. And clearly it's got a very serious cause of all of this, this, this stuff. But yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating to watch. Okay, okay. What do you think about when you hear ethics? Oof. Uh, I think about I, doing the right thing. So I think I probably have in my mind a kind of priest or a saintly figure. Okay. Okay. And then um, TV detective. Oh, <laughs> uh, so your, your listeners probably won't have heard of this. At least it's not one that's based in the UK. There is a, there's a series called Inspector Morse. And uh, this is set in Oxford. And so it's beautifully, beautifully shot. And it, it's kind of from, from a few decades back. But he he kind of drives around in a nice car, solves his almost classic sort of university style crime. So there's lots of lots of murders and, and all sorts of other things going on. But it's just beautifully shot. And I grew up with that. So classic kind of British detective. Uh, I'll send you a link. You can put it in the, in, in the show notes for people. But, yeah, I think Inspector Morse. OK. Oh, that's so funny. Did you ever watch Lovejoy? Yeah. Yes. I, my husband and I were just addicted to Lovejoy. And I think he's, he he's a lovable book. rogue, actually. That's an interesting one. And and he's one of those, he's one of those characters. And and people that he, he operates in the in the antiques sector. So there's a fictional character. And so you, you it's really interesting, isn't it? Because that, that's an example of a character that is you, you know kind of is doing some not terrible things, but not good things either. There's definitely some law breaking going on. Uh, but it's kind of lovable and you kind of go with it. And I think that's a really good illustration of how we can all get dragged potentially into, into situations that we might not originally have envisaged and, and kind of find a rationale for it. So I think that's a really good example. I must go and catch up on some of those, actually. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Um, so I, didn't, I don't think you've had this guest on your podcast, but um, maybe this would be a good guest. Do you know Jamil Zaki? I've heard the name, but I can't place more than that. So he has the book, The War for Kindness, and I heard him on Hidden Brain. And the reason I bring him up and kindness is the workplace. Like, I know we agree that you put a you put a good person in a bad environment. Things can go badly. Right. So he might be a good uh, guest for your podcast. Um, I don't I know. Check that out. <laughs> but I love. But, um, I, I think kindness is really interesting because it's it's seen as a. I mean, and I, I had I had someone on talking about kindness recently, a guy called Sebastian Boo, who uh, is at the London School of Economics, talking around that stuff. So, so, but I'm fascinated by that because it's it's an interesting one because it seems weak. You know, it's, it's it's often associated with weakness, but actually, I think is is one of those hidden superpowers. And if we can be kinder to each other, it doesn't necessarily mean being nicer or weaker. It just means kind of being a little bit more human. I think I, I think that's fascinating. So yeah, I'm 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 re- I'm really intrigued by that. I, I'm I'm desperately trying to be kinder myself. I fail very regularly. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that. Somehow I doubt that. So you have the practice that you have the podcast and then you consult. And um, how has COVID, COVID impacted you with all of that? Right. So I'll, I'll just clarify slightly what my, my model is, because what, what, I, what I recognized is that if you want to solve this challenge of human risk, right, getting thinking about the people that you have within your organization, potentially also customers as well, who can also impact your, your risk, and, and I guess suppliers as well, trying to influence those people requires you to have an understanding of the environment because we respond heavily to the environments that, that we're in. So when I'm when I'm working with clients, one of the things I try to do is to not bring solutions, but bring inspiration. So trying to get them to come up with ideas. And so I can guide them and point out things that um, they might not have thought of before, but it's really about them adapting it. So the consulting model has a heavy component of training and working with people because what I want to do is leave people able to solve, if they had the same problem again, that they are, they don't have to call me back. And so I'm really working with people to try and um, to try and get that that there. And so COVID was really interesting because I started my company in 2019. So I'm just kind of getting going. <laughs> and I had this great plan to be going to all sorts of amazing places around the, the, the world. And I love traveling because I think it's great for the mind and the soul. 
and you experience different different things. And so I had this great plan to go traveling and working working with people in interesting all sorts of different locations. And then obviously we couldn't do that. And so my business was originally going to be face-to-face is the sort of plan A. And then for those times when I couldn't be in two locations at once, I was going to do a digital delivery. And I just realized I was just going to have to flip that. And so I just started to think about how can I engage people digitally? So what can we do to deliver something that I think clearly works best in a, in a face-to-face environment where, you, where, you, where you're sitting there and you can have, you know, it's not just a case of, of talking to a 2D screen, but you're really able to engage with people, not just in the, in the sessions that you're having, but around them as well. And you can see their environment. I was working out, well, what can I do to, to sort of think about delivering in the digital space. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at communication, looking at pieces of software, looking at techniques that you can use to be more effective digitally. So I kind of had to upskill myself slightly. I mean, I thought I knew a reasonable amount around communication, but uh, obviously the, the digital is slightly different. And so I've, it's a great excuse for me as a man to buy lots of uh, lots of gadgets and technology to, to test that out. But I've really just transitioned slightly. And, and a key component to what I, to what I look at now is, is also communication. Because if you are trying to influence people within an organization, then you need to have certain skills. So if I'm going to get people to do that effectively, I need to have those skills myself. So I've spent a lot of time developing skills I never thought I needed, uh, but actually turned out to be quite quite useful. So it's been a real revelation, um, but I, I think I was fortunate in that I was willing to try new things. And one of the fantastic things is if I'm going to tell other people to throw conventional thinking out of the window from time to time, I need to be able to do that myself. So my business is very fluid in some respects in that I'm always looking to see where else I can stretch it. What other areas are interesting? What do people want from me and how can I help support them? Uh, And so it was a, a voyage of discovery. And that, to be honest, has continued. And I'm finding it really fascinating now saying, okay, I've now got the reverse problem, which is face to face is back to a certain extent. Um, how do I combine that with with the digital that I've built up and build this 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 hybrid piece? So it's been really interesting, and I think has really shaped the business in a different way than if COVID hadn't been around. Yeah, I mean there are obviously terrible things that happen because of COVID, but there's also some good things. Um, so I'm watching Super Pumped on Showtime, which is the story of Uber. And um, <laughs> only the second episode in and they show a party that they have. And it's just you've got to watch it because I couldn't. I, it would be fascinating to see what you would say about when the guys handing the bills to Travis for this party and the insanity of it all. Do you ever get a client where you're just like, I, I just, I, I can't help them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, <laughs> I wondered where we were going, but I love the, I love the intro. Um, no, I, so, so what is really interesting is I've realized that I, how do you get the best out of me? Well, the answer is I, I, there has to be some kind of bridge with the, with, with the client. So generally speaking, people don't wake up in the morning, particularly in the kind of compliance space and think, hey, what I need is some behavioral science guy to tell me what to do, right? It's not something they're consciously aware that they need. So I, a lot of my um, kind of marketing, if you like, is, is, is presenting at conferences, as you expecting stuff on social media. And so that has an interesting filtering effect in that if you're not thinking along the same lines I'm thinking and you think think what I'm doing is is you know it's it's making a mockery of serious things or uh, you're not convinced it'll work then that kind of filters you out because I, I need to be working with people that get it people that recognize that the traditional ways that we do things for example um, you know I've put it in a policy so you will comply with it without thinking about whether actually are you likely to read that policy is that policy easy to read is it easy to understand is the thing you're getting people to do or not do easy for them to do or does it feel unnatural so really thinking about the human components of that if you're not a buyer of that particular thing then um, there's no point because I don't want to go in to an organization and have to kind of deal with challenging orthodoxy, which is a lot of what I what I get up to, if the people aren't on board. So I need the right levels of buy-in. And I don't mind challenge from people, but I don't want people to be questioning the basic premise. So it tends to filter itself out. So I've had a few people kind of had initial conversations and I've started to look at what we could do and think about 
uh, how I might be able to help them. And it's very clear that they are not up for the journey, that it's not something that they feel they can do politically or practically. And, and of course, sometimes people have convenient excuses, like they blame regulators. Our regulators will never let us do that. And so there's a lot of filtering that goes on because you, you're absolutely right in that uh, not just I'm, I'm an acquired taste. You have to you have to want to hear the British accent. You have to, you know, I, I have some quirky stories that, that sort of come from all sorts of different parts of the world. And, and so if you're not, what you don't want to come on that journey, then it's not going to work. And I have walked away from things in the nicest possible way where I just don't feel the, that I can help them. And, and I don't want people wasting their money with me if we're not going to be able to take them on a, on a journey. So it does become a very personal relationship. And I have, I have a lot of clients that I did coaching with where it really is a one-on-one or one-on-one with a team and we're building a relationship together. And so that requires us to want to go to the same destination and to work effectively. So yeah, there is, there's a little bit of screen that goes on on both sides. And I'm very honest with people. If I don't think I can help them, then I'll help them find someone that can. Then they'll just go to McKinsey and pay like. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that's the sort of the the, the substitute purchase, but it's it's um you know it, it depends what you're trying to do. I mean, if you just want to tick the box, right? If you just want to build a you know a, a lot of people say oh, I just want to do what everybody else is doing, and what I'm offering is something slightly different. And so if you just want to be able to say, look, we're doing the same thing everybody else is doing, regardless of whether that's a good idea or not, then I'm not the person for that. I'm looking at doing something slightly different. So yeah, there are other providers are available, I'm told. <laughs> um, so how would your friends and family describe you besides being very curious and asking a lot of questions? Uh, childish, I think, is definitely there so on some level, <laughs> it's, which which I think fits together. I really haven't. I don't think any of us ever grow up particularly, but I, I don't think I've ever lost that thing. Um, I, I have a, a relatively short attention span in the I'm I'm kind of doing a bit of this, bit of that, and I get very excited by things and then and then kind of move on to the next thing and the next thing. And you see that with with hobbies or with with you know cooking to certain types of food. I get I, I sort of dive into that. So I would say probably it's you know, of course I'm just gonna use positive adjectives, Kelly, but it's it's kind of like you know, just enjoying life and and having fun and and, and a sort of sense of adventure. Um, although it's, it, I, I used to think I was massively adventurous and I had a, a skydiver and stunt woman on my podcast who basically put me to shame. So I, I've decided to back away from any vocabulary that describes me as edgy, but I would say as somebody with a kind of compliance background who, well, you know, a recovering compliance officer, I probably am at the ratio end of the spectrum there. Okay. Um, which leads me to, so you have an amazing guest list. And I have to say, I think I've been on twice on your show, which you was have, and we're going to get you back on a third time. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> um, and I've totally been fangirling on uh, Zoe chance and her magic question. Do you have a dream guest that you're just like, I mean, I have a couple of dream guests that I know I just can't ever get, but do you have a dream guest? Oh, so this, do you know, it's so this, it's funny because I, I keep sort of thinking, actually, in many respects, you have nothing to lose by asking whoever. And so there are people that I would just love to chat to and get an interesting insight from that probably had nothing to do with, with human risk, but I just would fascinate me. So I think, you know, I find people like Elton John absolutely fascinating because the experiences they've had. And so, so someone, someone like that, I think would be, would be interesting. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, Zelensky in, in Ukraine, given what he's going through would be fascinating. I wouldn't want to be wasting his time at the moment, but that would be an interesting one. Um, I think there are some absolutely inspirational people that have done, I, I think, you know, in my, in my field, um, I see there's, there's quite a few people, um, Caroline Criado Perez, who's written a book called Invisible Women, uh, which looks at the way society is male dominated. I think she's incredible and, and, you know, has just, has written a book that's really simple and yet is, is mind blowing. And I love people that, that, that can do that. Um, I think you know, Angela Merkel, I think would be an amazing oh, yeah. person to have on because of what she's been through, both her background in East Germany, but the, the times getting her views on the world. Um, so yeah, there'll be, there'll be a lot of sort of the obvious famous people out there, a few, a few academics, 
Um, I think someone like, and this, this will polarize a few people, but I think someone like Greta Thunberg would be fascinating just to have a, a kind of engagement with and get, get a, a different perspective. And one of the things that I love about my show is I don't really have any rules about who's permitted to come on and I'll, I'll kind of create a reason for getting them on. And so I think, you know, there's lots of opportunities there to just, just pluck interesting people that maybe nobody's ever heard of that have just had some interesting experiences. I mean, so, you know, some speaking to uh, refugees, I think would be really interesting around their, their, their experiences and, and just, just finding different perspectives. So people that have broken, I, oh, I, I would love to talk to Sarah Gilbert, who was one of the people that developed the COVID vaccine in, in, in Oxford, uh, one of many other vaccines are available. Um, again, just fantastic scientist. Like, how does it feel when you are fighting? We're all fighting this awful, awful disease, and you have the you you know that you have the capability to do it. I think it would be a phenomenal thing. And she managed to make it happen. So that would be another person. So there you go. There's a few. Which leads me to what podcast do you listen to? Well, uh, well, apart from the, apart from obviously anything featuring Kelly Paxton is always high value. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, behavioral grooves, um, yes, which is uh, Tim Houlihan and Kurt Nelson, who just put on this, this wonderful, they have a wonderful camaraderie and it's a combination of behavioral science and music, um, which I think is just, is just a great thing to listen to. Um, anything involving Rory Sutherland, uh, I'm a huge fan of as well. He's a, he's a big guy in behavioral science and has some uh, really, really interesting insights. Um, and then, and then for a sort of very eclectic mix, I would go with, oh, who am I going to go for? Um, I think I would pick probably the, uh, the, the, the best thing I can think of is um, BBC radio four has a, a series called intrigue. And they have got, uh, they, they, they kind of cover different, oh, sometimes it's serializations of books. And there was a fabulous book, and I'm going to forget the lady's name, but I'll send it to you afterwards, uh, who'd written a book around an escape tunnel in Berlin. And it was a serialization of, of, of the book, uh, which was fascinating. But I love the fact this podcast, you never quite know what you're going to get because they do, they, 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 they follow a particular story, a little bit like serial. Um, but it's much more sort of uh, B- BBC focused so that they c- it can stretch much more broadly than that. So that would be my sort of series choice. So in my business, we have a hard time getting people to do proactive work. Um, you know, no one thinks fraud's going to happen in their business because we have optimism bias and, you know, you and I are huge behavioral science nerds. Um but then if they come to us on the backside, it's always so much more expensive. Do you have that same sort? Because it just takes much more time. It's not that I charge them a, you know, I'm going to say a full fee, but maybe no, I don't charge them a full fee. But do you have that same sort of issue where it's harder to get someone who's never, quote, experienced it, even though they probably have, they just don't realize it versus on the backside when a regulator says you've got to clean this up. Oh, to- totally. I think, uh, you know, I, it's fascinating for me because when I, when I look, you know, I, I go back to the comment I made earlier about people tend not to wake up in the morning and go, how I need some behavioral science in this, in this thing. Um, and so typically what is driving people to have conversations with me is so they, they, they'll have to be aware of me. So they've seen something will have piqued their interest. But what tends to be behind that is either a, a realization that they've had that something's not quite right and they're willing to challenge it. And of course, that can be because they've seen it starting to go wrong. They're recognizing a pattern they've seen elsewhere. Um, so that's a, that's a key sort of intrinsic driver, if you like. But there are extrinsic drivers, which is something has gone wrong in their organization or something's gone wrong in a competitor's organization and they kind of recognize it could happen there. Or they've been told by a regulator that something could happen. And so there's an extrinsic motivation that makes it happen. But without any of those things, it's very, very difficult because we, as you say, we sit in a, in a, in a sort of comfort zone and prevention is a lot cheaper than <laughs> dealing with the, the kind of remedial mediation or the cure afterwards. Um, but I think that's a, that's a natural tendency. And so I, the, you know, one of the ways that I sort of work out is, can I work with you? Is my question, why do you want to do this? What is it that's driving this particular thing? And uh, yeah, it, it is way easier if I've got somebody intrinsically motivated, they, for something has triggered inside of them that actually that they want to just try something a little bit different. That's very, very powerful. Um, but equally powerful is you are, you know, you, you, you are told to do it. Your regulator telling you to do it 
clearly that there's a budget that comes with that, which is which is also kind of helpful. But I'm looking for those trigger points because if they don't exist and I don't understand what is the driver of this particular thing, one, it doesn't help me deliver the right solution. But secondly, I'm 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 questioning a little bit about how successful we're going to be. And so ideally for me, it's intrinsically motivated people. If I can find people that are themselves curious, that's the, that's the best one. So I have had a few that have been very foresightful, but to your point, the foresight has come from having observed something. Like they've had to go, there's some sort of data point that has triggered their interest in change. And that might be a data point from their previous employer, might be a data point from maybe something I've given to them that's, that's kind of sparked that thought. But you're right, there is something, there is something really interesting in the human thing is that will never happen to me. Right. It's all those, all those other idiots over there. And I'm much smarter than that. And all those kind of things, which I laugh about, but then I do the same thing, right? Just in my, in my personal life, I do the same thing. And that's the bit that I find really, really amusing is that we can spot it in other people. It's really difficult to spot in ourselves. We absolutely all do it. And that dynamic plays out in people's personal lives. And as you say, in business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you could work, and I'm, again, I ask these questions because I'm curious about them. If you could work in a different job field, what would it be? Like if you had a different career path, have you thought of this? Yeah, totally. Totally. I know exactly what my alternative career would have been. I would have gone into radio. Um, I was all, I used to love listening to the radio as a kid. Um, I think because I grew up in an in an area, you know, we we had like three TV channels, which younger listeners is gonna think of, think I've you know I've missed a zero off the end of it or something, but they're literally three TV channels. And so radio was this 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 big thing. And um, and in fact, when when I was growing up in the in in the UK, and I grew up both in the UK and in Germany, there were all sorts of broadcasting restrictions that uh, meant that that you know the, there were limits on what music, for example, could be played, and so there were these pirate radio stations that were on the on the on the in in, in the kind of English Channel in the North Sea. So the, the waters around the UK, people put radio stations on ships, so they weren't governed by the regulation. Therefore, they could play the music that they wanted to play. So it was literally a really really interesting form of regulatory arbitrage, right, for the compliance thing. Or they would broadcast from distant locations. So like there's a there's a thing called Radio Luxembourg, which used to broadcast as the name implies from Luxembourg, into the UK. And they could do that at the time because the uh, if you used uh, long wave radio, you could broad, there were certain times down there where the signal traveled a long way. And so there was nighttime broadcasting to the UK from outside the UK. And that was kind of, that was the cool radio station to listen to. And that drove, interestingly, these people circumventing the rules was eventually what led to the liberalization of things. So there's this, all this backdrop that I always sort of found curious and fascinating. And I bitterly regret in many respects going to university that didn't have a radio station because I'm absolutely convinced that if I had been at one, I would have got involved with it. And that might have been the career path I've chosen. So in many respects, the podcast is really an attempt to kind of catch up for lost time and, and, and live that career that I know a different me would have taken. That's so funny that you said that because I literally wrote on my notes that radio just naturally went to podcasts. I did the little radio, you know, arrow to podcasts. So you did. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm having this vision of there was a, a London banker hedge funder that got caught like stealing a sandwich. Do you remember that story? He either got caught stealing a sandwich or something and he lost his really good job over a sandwich. So there's there's a there's a few stories I've heard of similar similar lines. There's there's one that I know of where he was defrauding the canteen in the in the, in the workplace, right? And he was just basically uh, so unclear whether it happened on several occasions or whether it was a one off. There was another guy who was cheating on his rail ticket. And he basically bought a t- one that was too cheap, and then and then and then effectively bought a sort of supplementary ticket that meant he he got fired as well. Um, so, and there's a few others of of people who were, were were frankly cheating for sums of money that they could easily have afforded, and there seemed to be an element of thrill involved, not really thinking, but their employers, I think, naturally, but certainly with pressure on the regulator, just kind of went that's not acceptable here because if you're prepared to do that, what else are you prepared to do? And I'm not necessarily sure that they were engaging in anything fraudulent from a work perspective, but clearly that was a decision that that wasn't acceptable. So there's quite a few of those stories of very small things that, you know, I mean, sums of money, the, the, the sum of money was almost irrelevant. It was the fact that you were prepared to do that that triggered that. Yeah. So there's quite a few of those. So if you look at say someone who does something like that, do you think of them as like 
a psychopath or a sociopath and that no amount of like, you know, coaching or training is going to get that sort of thrill of the steel out of them. I, so I, what I think is interesting is that we always look at individuals, right? And we say, when something goes wrong, we blame the individual. We point the finger at them and we go, bad person. And of course, there is an element of that that is absolutely true, right? And we all have to be responsible for our own actions. But I think there's a huge bit, which is the environment drives people to certain behaviors. So it incentivizes them to behave in a particular way. So we can think about bonuses as an example, or sales targets uh, incentivize people to behave. But so does irritating them. And there are lots of examples of people that sort of feel hard done by, uh, either legitimately or not. And maybe they didn't get the pay raise that they were expecting, or they think other people have paid more money than them, or they feel somehow disadvantaged. Uh, and that might be as simple as their company no longer funding business class. It's going, you're going to have to go to the back of the plane. And they find this irritating because that's something they've always had. And so they, they seek to sort of claw it back a little bit sometimes. Um, and, and so I think we should focus. Yes, we absolutely need to look at the lens of the individual, but we also need to focus at what the environmental factors are. And I think that's important for two reasons. One is recognizing that we respond to the environment that we're in, but right? we're not just much as we'd like to think we're autonomous beings that make our own minds up. We are heavily influenced by the environment and other people. And I think that the, the, the second piece is that if you don't think about things in terms of the environment, then all that happens is you can get rid of the bad people, but you'll just bring new people into that same environment. And if it's a toxic environment, you're risking the same thing happening again. And so I think that's a really important thing to, to, to factor in as we, as we look at it. So I don't want to say that some of these people aren't psychopaths and financial services does absolutely attract, particularly the sort of um, Wall Street or City of London investment banking type end of the or trading end of the spectrum does attract people with certain attributes and they are rewarded for behaving in that particular way. So there's definitely that component there. But I wouldn't want to kind of immediately write people off and say it's all down to them. There will be a small percentage of people that set out to com- to do the wrong thing, commit fraud, break the rules. The vast, and there's a you know, very small percentage of people that will never break the rules. The vast majority of people are susceptible at some level. So I think this designation of so-and-so as a psychopath, it might be correct, but I think it's also quite dangerous. It's quite lazy because what it what it presupposes is that people don't change and can't be influenced. And that's, that's convenient for companies because they'll go, bad apple, let's get rid of Maybe it's not the apple. Maybe it's the barrel that the apple is in that is the problem. And I think that that narrative avoids that issue, which is why companies go down that road. But I think we've got to think about both. Now, I didn't look through all of your episodes. Did you have you had Margaret Heffernan on your? Yes. Okay, her and the super chickens. That is like whenever I do a presentation on ethics, I have to bring up the super chickens. And I just think she is like, I don't know. She she would be one of my dream guests for sure, because the super chickens. I worked at a super chicken place. Have you ever worked at a super chicken place? No, I haven't. (laughs) Really? In financial services, you haven't worked at it. And I use the example of you put Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs and Donald Trump in a pen. What's going to (laughs) happen? Yeah, I mean, so when I when I say I haven't worked, I mean, I have worked in organizations where those characters have existed, but I have avoid. I, I think I have studiously avoided w- working directly with them, and so I've come across them. But I, but I have consciously, maybe, maybe to, to you know, to use Margaret's phrase, will you know, maybe may I've been willfully blind on it, but I've always tried to avoid that. And for me, the culture that I work in is really, really important. I've always wanted to work with high quality people. Yeah, you know, I never want to be the smartest kid in the class because I want other people to drag me up uh, and, you know, to be to benefit from that. But also it's, you know, if it's an environment that I don't think is conducive, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. And so even if I have worked in organizations where there are elements of that and look, you know, financial services clearly has that. I always found niches where it wasn't obvious or prevalent. So that's, that's my caveat to your question. Well, that's funny because in Super Pumped, and it starts out with Travis interviewing a guy and he's like, are you an asshole? 
And you can see the gut and then it jumps What's around. What's the right there. answer there, right? <laughs> well, you got to be an asshole to work there, basically. That 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 is it. You've got to watch Super Pumped just for the the party scene so far. You would just go bonkers with like bad decisions. Bad bad decisions. So, um yeah. Love that. So what are you most excited about in your business or in the space of human risk going forward? Well, I think this. So, so I keep coming across lots of uh, people doing interesting things, and I think we're getting we're getting much smarter about what goes on in the human brain, and we have this capability now uh, to run larger scale experiments. Right? Technology gives us several things. The, the first one is what I call the truth serum. Right? So, if you want to use Google, there's no point in lying to Google about what you're searching for because it will get you worse answers. So we tell the truth to machines in way what we're thinking in ways that we don't do to human beings. We've got mobile devices that are tracking us all the time. Yes, that's creepy, but it's also amazing from a, an insights perspective. And so I look at technology as kind of double-edged sword, really dangerous. We need to be really careful. I'm concerned about some of these, these, these pieces, but I'm also excited about the, the capabilities and what, what we can do with it uh, to, to achieve all sorts of interesting behavioral outcomes. So the interaction between human and machine, I think, fascinating and one of the things that's just you know I'll, I'll sort of posit for your your listeners is that we often talk about you know we think machines reduce risk because they are predictable and they're not prone to emotion and all those sorts of things and that's true but what's interesting is that when the more machines take over the world and do the tasks that they're good at so the repetitive tasks human beings are going to be spending more time doing things that involve judgment and nuance and emotional intelligence which is when we're at our best but it's also when we're most dangerous. And so as I see, you know, a lot of people think machines are going to eliminate human risk. I actually think they're going to increase it. And if you think about people slavishly following GPS units and driving into rivers, trusting the technology and you know, not really understanding what it's doing, that is incredibly dangerous. And so I'm quite excited about both the pros and the cons, because I think far from a lot of people said, oh, machines are where it's at. I would argue humans are where it's at. And that's what we need to watch and manage. So there's lots of potential to deploy the stuff I'm talking about. And I think we've got some major challenges ahead, right? So with geopolitical challenges, we've got climate. There's a big issue. We've got a lot of things, you know, there's a ton of inequality, loads of things we need to solve. Human beings are the key to solving these things because that's the behavior that we need to change. And so I'm really excited about the possibility that we can get far more value, if you like, out of, out of the human beings that are on this planet. And if we don't do that, we are going to literally destroy our habitat and, and possibly destroy each other if we're not careful. And so I think, I think that the, all of the challenges that we're facing as a species, I think will be, will be met by human endeavor. And that's, the, that's what excites me and interests me around how we can move this. So human, I talk, human risk is very negative. So let me, let me give you a positive spin on that, which is what I call human reward. And that's just the simple, the flip of risk being reward. And so what, what do I mean by that? I mean, getting the best out of people. And so at the moment, we have a huge amount of untapped potential, right? So that's people that aren't getting educated to in, 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 in a way that allows them to fulfill their potential. That is some of the constraints around a patriarchal society where we design things for the benefit of men rather than the benefit of everybody. And so as we look at that, we've been holding a load of people down and therefore not getting the best that we possibly can. And that means we don't get the best leaders necessarily. There are lots of people that could really add some value if we gave them that opportunity. And I think that for me is really exciting because then we can start to say, okay, how do we solve these problems? Well, let's put our best minds on it. And I'm not sure at the moment that we have structures in place that bring our best minds in many cases. And you can pick your own example. You know, our structures deliver the worst possible minds, appalling people in positions that they really shouldn't be in. And we can do so much better. And so as I look at human risk as the negative, the human reward, but getting the best out of people, not, not, you know, not the most, not exploiting them, getting the best out of them, I think is a really exciting opportunity. And the, and the two are interrelated, by the way. So if you if you over-egg the human risk thing and you say to yourself, right, everybody poses a massive risk, I need to control that, you will undercook human reward. You won't get the best out of them. But if you unleash human reward and you go, just be the best you can, people will do crazy stuff that we don't want, and that'll cause human risk. So as we're, as we're looking at what, what how do we influence people, we need to balance those two things out. It's a delicate kind of balancing act between those two things. But if we get it right, I think we can solve a ton of problems and be just be a whole lot better. We'll have a lot more fun as well. Yeah, which, so 
behavioral science and academia, I think, I'm not going to say finally, but lately, has done a really good job getting into the mainstream. And, you know, there's several people leading it. And um, Rory Sutherland is not an academic, but like, I mean, there are people out there. And I love that how that world is not going to say getting to be completely mainstream. But I think I think academia has finally like stepped up to uh, like, you know, Zoe Chance did basically getting themselves out there to help a larger group of people. They're not keeping it in academia. So I think it's interesting because I think we, we, we focus on, you know, what, what we see, right. We, so if we think about it, we're not seeing every academic doing that. There's tons of people still sitting in ivory towers and not, and not sharing things. And I find it deeply ironic that, when people are working in behavioral science, i.e. understanding people, some of them are terrible at communicating that to the outside world. And you sort of think, and, and I do wonder with some, some people, and this is, you know, this is a certain subset where you just sort of say, look, would you just be just as happy analyzing a computer algorithm? And it just happens to be humans that you've chosen as your subject to study. Um, because, because you don't seem to be engaging on a particularly human level. Uh, whereas some of the other academics that I see in this space that really are engaging, that really recognize that we need to speak to, to you know, speak to humans and communicate with them. And they're fulfilling in doing that. They're fulfilling the societal ask, right? Why do we allow people uh, to, to sit in sort of, you know, hallowed institutions studying effectively subsidized on some level by society? Um, why do we allow that to happen? And, and the answer is, well, we have it for a reason. We have these, these centers of learning and excellence for a reason because it helps further society. You know, and that's why when you get dictatorships, they go off to academia, right? Because that, that's challenging. So in a free society, we really need these three. And I look at it and say, I think academics, incumbent on academics, even in private institutions, to go out and spread the word. And to share what they have learned, that is what they should be giving to society. And I think it also helps calibrate what they're doing. So they're not just running off doing things that are sort of potentially just interesting for them, but they can really benefit the rest of us. And so I'm delighted, I agree with you, I'm absolutely delighted to see a swathe of academics that I think are engaging, that are using modern ways of communicating, that are really thinking about how you can, how can learn messages. And they are taking what they're learning in their academic into, into the real world. And that's important, one, because it means it goes somewhere. It doesn't just sit in a, in a, in a sort of research uh, paper. But I think the second thing is it, it, that's, how it's, that's how we're going to help solve some of these world problems is we're going we're gonna to take some things that are useful. And Zoe Chance's book is a really good example. Here's something anybody can pick that up read it and come away and 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 improve their lives in some way shape or form may not solve the biggest problems they've got but it's going to improve for some people it will be absolutely life-changing and i love that and i'm really excited and i hate this idea of you know behavioral science yet it, a lot of it happens in laboratories and historically it's been like let's test this out on students well students are not typical you can bribe students with small amounts of money and alcohol Right? And they will change that. They'll, yeah, I'll willingly participate in a study. That doesn't necessarily translate to the real world. So we need to bridge this gap. And a lot of what, I, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to take academic findings and sort of apply that in a compliance, ethics, and risk context. So it's much easier for me if, if the, the bridge that I'm building is already one that's human-friendly. In other words, I can think, I can spend more time thinking about how does what Zoe and colleagues are telling us in, in the broad sense, how might that apply in the specific sense? As as opposed to me having to dive through academic papers, work out what the hell it means, and then do the translation exercise. So it's hugely helpful to me, but I, I love it because I think that's I think that's what they should be there for, and that's how they can add value and really help us. Well, yeah, and it's, they're just much more accessible. I mean, my husband wrote a book, and you know, it's not huge, it's expensive, and I'm not going to buy a book like that. Versus, you know, someone, Adam Grant, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and get his work for, you know, $24.95 versus $79.95 for an academic book. So I like how they're they're just kind of spreading the word. But I think people. I think that's that's the way I could to my mind, though, that's the way academia should work. Right. Is that and it shouldn't be a separate thing where they have to publish a book. I actually think that we should have we should have research papers produced that are technical and for subject matter experts. 
But then it would be nice if actually that was distilled down into something a little bit akin to the books that we've got into into a, into a format that other people can understand. And and I think there's a compliance and risk and ethics parallel there, right? Or you know, fraud parallel in your case, which is to sort of go. There are things that we as technical experts in the subject need to understand. But we also need to influence people that aren't technical experts, that, that, that have no interest in being technical experts, because if they were interested in it, they'd be doing it. And so we need to translate technical rules and requirements and psychological concepts and ideas and past experience into things that make sense for the average human being. And so I would love it if we could see academics, not just writing books, but actually having forms of their, yeah, sure, have your highfalutin papers that are useful for research purposes. But wouldn't it be great if there was like a, a, a sort of, you know, dummy's guide to this thing that came alongside and they saw that as part of their responsibility. And I think that's where books naturally have filled a, a space because that was the traditional mechanism that you would get things into people's hands. Now with social media, I'm seeing some great examples of academics, not just publishing books and, and doing speeches, but they are thinking about how can I create social media friendly content that can engage everybody in the thing that I'm looking at. And, and that for me, I think is a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, when they do it, they get a tremendous amount of feedback because they suddenly start to see how their ideas flourish in the real world. Okay. So this is to close it out. And I don't know if this is going to close it out because <laughs> um, have you ever thought of politics? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I can tell you, I can tell you that the, the answer to that is, and, and no under present circumstances. And one of the biggest influences was I, I you know, I went, I, I might as well say it, right? I, I went to Oxford. And so I rubbed shoulders with tons of people that are now at the top of UK politics and, and doing all sorts of other interesting things as well. And that environment was, it, it, it's almost a training ground, certainly for UK politics there. And I didn't like the what what that seemed to require of people in terms of the behaviors that they were on display there and i i subsequently see and there were you know lots of lots of kind of government ministers here in the uk that i was at university with and i kind of go man i can't believe is that the back to my point is that the best we can do and i don't like i think politics requires you to to you know it, it there's a lot of unpleasant there's some really good things that happen and that, and to be clear there are some really good dedicated people in that space that are doing it for the right reasons and and you know i'm not saying everybody that came out of my university is bad, but there are some pretty high profile examples of some appalling individuals who are not at all suited, who frankly don't have societies or the countries or anyone's best interest apart from their own. And they're in it for the totally the wrong reasons. And, and I think, you know, they've been willing to make those sacrifices because they see those rewards. And so I looked at that trade-off and just went, that's not for me because I'll tell you what, I'm also inconsistent. I like to change my mind on stuff and I like to listen and hear things. And I've, my political views have shifted and things that I absolutely, if you'd asked the 20-year-old version of me, you know, I stood behind this and now I'm not so sure. And, you, you know, we don't seem to permit politicians to do that. You can't change your mind because that's a weakness. You need to have always been on message. And we, we castigate people who sort of perform U-turns. You're not allowed to make mistakes. You know, mistakes is for losers and wimps. And I think that's terrible. And so I just, I think I would crumble under that because I'm, I'm not prepared to play that game. And so for those reasons, I'm out while the requirement is this. Now, would I like to make a difference? Absolutely. But I don't want to stand for public office. I mean, I've st I stood for student elections and hated it. It's like a horrible thing, right? You have to go and be nice to people you don't really like and all sorts of things. So under current circumstances, not interested at all. Doesn't mean I'm not interested in kind of thinking about how we can change the world and doing other things. But for that frontline politics thing, I also think it's you're, you're sacrificing your private life quite a lot as well. And you're bringing other people into that arena. And look, it's not without its, its, its dangers. And we've, you know, we, we've, we've had a few politicians here who have been, you know, murdered. And so I also look at that and think that's not, that's not something that I would want to go through. And, and maybe that's a lack of courage on my part. So that's, that's why I wouldn't do it. Do I think I could do some interesting things? Absolutely. But um, it's not for me in the current, in the current structure. And I'd rather just be honest about that than kind of half-heartedly pursue it. Well, so what if a politician came to you for consulting? Oh yeah, I, I would love that, right? All of that. I mean, if you can, if you can get the ear of authority 
without having to take any of the responsibility for the decisions that are made. And you can come at it from a perspective of purity, right? So you can literally represent, I mean, you can play whatever the opposite of devil's advocate is, right? So you can, you can put ideas there. So you can push an extreme position. I think that would be super, that would be, that'd be really interesting. Now you'd have to accept that a lot of the times you, you wouldn't get your way, but you would absolutely be able to influence. So I think these advisors and kind of, um, you know, people that are, are kind of around the place, they have a lot of power and influence without any of the, the challenges. You get to see all the interesting stuff going on. So yeah, I think that would be, that would be fascinating. Um, I, the, the, the trouble is I suspect the people that I'd like to help probably have much better advisors than I'd be. And therefore I'd probably be left advising the terrible ones. And I, I would, I think the other thing is I would, I would be doing it up until the point at which I really disagree with something. And one of the things that worries me about the polarized world is there's a strong likelihood of having to sort of sign, you know, and, and this collective responsibility thing, I would, would bother me as well slightly because you're not allowed to speak. If your own side does something that's, that's kind of wrong, you don't agree with it. You're not really allowed to speak out. And I think that's a strange dynamic that I would struggle with. I like to be able to speak freely, but it's funny. I mean, you mentioned that because, because, you know, that's how I see my relationship with my clients really, which is, which is I'm sort of trying to paint a vision for them and I'm might, I'll talk to them about what a vision of 100 is like. Maybe they're at 20. I'll talk about 100. And we probably, I know they won't get to 100, but maybe if my talking about 100 gets them to 60, as opposed to 40 on their own bat, or maybe even higher, that feels like a, um, you know, that feels like a worthwhile thing. So that principle, I think I'm applying in, in the work. But yeah, you won't see me in the political arena, although, right, never say never. And I reserve the right, back to my earlier point, of changing my mind. <laughs> okay, Kristen, what... Haven't I asked you that you want to get out to the great women in fraud audience? I think I think you've covered pretty much everything. I mean, I as as you can tell, I could talk quite easily. So I think even if you didn't ask it, Kelly, I've managed to weave in enough stuff there. Um, and and so no, I don't I don't think there's there's there's, there's an obvious question. I mean, my, my you know future ambitions is just to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, I I, I want to network with interesting people. And and kind of meet interesting people looking at different things because I think we can keep learning. And for me, this is all about learning stuff. So the question you might have asked me would be about sort of where does this go from here? I've got a ton of things I want to do that are in that space. Um, and so yeah, there's a book coming, various other things. You, you you've managed to inspire me by writing your books. It's about time I finished mine. So loads of things like that. But no, other than that, I think you've asked some great questions, and um, and hopefully I've managed to at least pique some interest in people. Oh, a book. Oh, I'm so excited for that. See, every time I listen or do a podcast, I literally buy a book like every single time. So I cannot wait for your book to come out. So we will have you back when your book is out. That will be the carrot and the stick. (laughs) Amazing. I will see if I can live up to that. Thank you so much, Christian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.